Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books and the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University, and we have a special co-host today. Hi, I'm your host, Kelvin Ng, a PhD candidate at Yale University. Today, we are both here to talk to Professor Kalyani Ramnath about her new book, Boats in a Storm, Law, Migration, and Decolonization in South and Southeast Asia between 1942 to 1962, published by Stanford University Press just this month. Professor Ramanat is an assistant professor of history at the University of Georgia with research and teaching interests in legal history, histories of migration and displacement, transnational history, and questions of archival methods. Boats in a Storm tells a fascinating story that starts with uh, more than a century before World War II, when traders, merchants, financiers, and laborers steadily moved between places on the Indian Ocean, trading goods, supplying credit, and seeking work. This all changed with the war, and as India, Burma, Ceylon, and Malaya wrested independence from the British Empire. Set against the uh, tumult of the post-war period, Boats in a Storm centers on the legal struggles of migrants to return their traditional rhythms and patterns of life, illustrating how they experience citizenship and decolonization. Even as nascent citizenship regimes and divergent political trajectories of decolonization Papered over migrations between South and Southeast Asia, migrants continue to recount cross-border histories and encounters with the law. These accounts, often obscured by national and international political developments, unsettle the notion that static national identities and loyalties had emerged fully formed and unblemished by migrant past in the aftermath of empires. Drawing on archival materials from India, Sri Lanka, Myanmar, London, and Singapore, Kalyani Ramrat narrates how former migrants battled legal requirements to revive pre-war circulations of credit, capital, and labor in a post-war context of rising ethno-nationalisms that accuse migrants of stealing jobs and hoarding land. Ultimately, the book shows how decolonization was marked not only by shipwrecked empires and nation states assembled and bordered from the debris of imperial collapse, but also by these forgotten stories of wartime displacement, their unintended consequences, and long afterlives. Welcome, Professor Ramna, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book. Thank you very much, Kevin and Ahmed, for having me. We are happy to have you today, and we would like first to learn about the authors. So can you please start us off by saying a few words about yourself, that is where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, 
and if you would like to mention any mentors and books. Absolutely. Um, so I grew up um, in India, in Kerala, right by the ocean. Um, so in the ultimate cliche, uh, yes, this book was, um, you know, I've always had a sort of hankering um, um, and sort of my world has always been shaped by um, its proximity to the seashore. So I grew up in Kerala, um, went to school there um, and moved uh, to Bangalore um, for my undergrad degree in um, in law and, 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 uh, and the arts. So um, my undergraduate degree is um, from the National Law School of India University in Bangalore. Um, and there um, I had the great good fortune of being able to pursue a law degree, a professional degree, alongside um, um, humanities and social science subjects. So it was very much structured as a an interdisciplinary approach to, to um, law. Um, I have to say I veered much more in the direction all of the humanities subjects, and in particular history, um, it was sort of my first um, first encounter with sort of critical approaches to the uh, to, to history um, at a law school. Um, so, unsurprisingly, um, when I graduated, um, I decided that I had to explore that interest further, um, and uh, with the you know uh, the at the sort of um, with the support of many wonderful teachers there, I was able to go to Yale Law School uh, for my master's in law. Um, at the time, and I think it, this this is still true, um, that the Yale Law School um, master's in law supports, um, you know, sort of an academic career. And I found it super exciting to be, you know, um, be able to take courses in legal history, which was, you know, something that I had increasingly gotten interested in. Um, and, uh, you know, at, at Yale, there were all of these courses on legal history that were on offer, and I, and I was in every one of them. <laughs> so um, at the end of that time, um, uh, you know, I, I, I caught the, the opportunity to return to the National Law School to, to teach, to actually um, stand in for to, for my own legal history teacher, uh, Dr. Elizabeth. So, went back to law school um, and taught legal history there for a couple of years. And I have to say that was transformative. It was the first time that I realized that I could actually this was this was more than a passing fancy. That this was something that I was really interested in. Um, um, and um, you know, during my time at Yale, I also had the good fortune of taking classes in the anthropology department, um, uh, you know, a readings course in South Asian studies and so on. And, you know, all of that sort of, what's the word for it? It's sort of amalgamation and sort of became this, uh, you know, the, the questions I was asking, um, you know, sort of became informed by my, um, my sort of um, initial training in legal history, my sort of interest in South Asian studies, um, um, and so on and so forth. So, you know, at the end of those two years, um, I decided that um, I would return to the United States for for a PhD. Um, and uh, as luck would have it, uh, you know, Princeton at the time um, had a wonderful reputation as the place to to pursue uh, a PhD in, in legal history, and particularly in legal histories of South Asia. Um, so there I was able to work with um, 
Professor Gyan Prakash and Professor Hendrik Hartog. Um, Gyan, of course, is a leading historian of South Asia, and then um, Doug Hartog is perhaps the most um, prolific and brilliant historian of law in the American context. And I was able to work with both of them. Um, and so that's that. Uh, it was at Princeton that I began the dissertation project that eventually became uh, Botsina's charm. Um, and then finally, um, just before my appointment at UGA, um, which I have now, um, I held a three-year postdoctoral fellowship at the Center for History and Economics at Harvard University. And that's where I kind of reworked the book, sort of stretching the canvas in different ways and seeing how, um, what, a, a book could be what a uh, you know what wh what's the start, sort of story that people would want to read about um, these places and times that I had spent nearly um, six to eight years researching and that's you know that's how I got to the book um, and at present I get to teach uh, um, some wonderful students here at UGA um, both both who are interested in going to law school and those who are deeply skeptical of the law. So I enjoy sort of straddling those two worlds of law and history and continue to do so. And what a magnificent book it is. Uh, I really Thank to you. congratulate you on, on such a tour de force. Uh, cool. um, Thank Dr. you. Robert, I, I have to, before we delve into the chapters of the book, I have a yes. question about the title of the book. Yes. Well, it's a direct allusion to the Tamil novelist Pasingaram's magnum opus of that very same name, a book we are living in which captures the mobile lives of migrants on the eve of World War II. Mm -hmm. It might be a book as an attempt to trace in the archives of law what yes. things renders in fiction. Mm -hmm. Tell us a bit more about the significance of the title of the book. Yes. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you for noticing that too. Um, I do mention it in sort of the preface of the book that this was what I was inspired by. And I think it's just such a, um, you know, um, such a powerful way to capture what I'm trying to do in the book, which is to show, um, you know, just how um, fluid, how fluctuating, how ever-changing this world was in, the, in between the 1940s and the 1960s um, as sort of nation states emerge from sort of the what I'm calling uh, the debris of imperial collapse. Um, and so, it, you know, it's... It, 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 it was a gesture um, also to the context in which that, that I was researching. It was important to me that it have a have um, a powerful sense of place. Um, um, it was a gesture to the languages that I was working with in my research. Um, um, so it was all of all of those things that led me to pick um, pick this as a as a title. Um, but it's also just really powerful to think about, you know, um, uh, boats as opposed to, you know, uh, uh, you know, there's a, there's a sense of scale there that I was trying to capture as well, right? I mean, it's not, you know, it's not the large steamers or the cruise ships. It's, it's, it's boats. It's the, uh, uh, it's the tiny little katamarans or the, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the little boats that are used for the coasting trade and so on. It's, it's a sense of scale and, I guess we'll come to this later on in the interview. Also, this attention to scale um, in the book. So, it it's at the at, at the at the scale of people's lives, at the at the level of people's lives, their ordinary sort of happinesses and sadnesses, and so, you know, it's it's that 
uh, tool that I wanted to capture with the title. Um, it was the title of the dissertation, and I know sometimes, um, you know, people tend to change that for the book, but I've only received positive feedback about this title, so I was quite committed to it for the book as well. So I ended up holding on to it for the book. I hope that sort of, does that, does that sort of answer your question? Yeah, it does. Such a beautiful story. <laughs> I'm glad actually you, you kept the title. It's also reminiscent of the Taoists on the other side of the ocean. Absolutely. Absolutely. And especially during the 20th century when we all read about steamers, but not about boats. So That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's now turn to the book and its chapters. But before delving into the chapters, uh, I would like to ask about, uh, there's a growing interest in developing body of scholarship, advancing legal approaches to the history of the Indian Ocean. Yes. And your acknowledgement uh, attests to that, the many names that you mentioned there. How would you situate boats in a storm uh, in this legal oceanic term? And what are the perspective contributions of the subfield uh, in fostering historiographical interventions and the way historians conceptualize and write about the transregional histories of law and the ocean? No, absolutely. That's such a wonderful question, Amit. Um, I do very much see myself as part of this conversation and the sort of move towards um, um, thinking oceanically um, and with legal archives. Um, and, you know, perhaps the most um, powerful rendering of this, um, you know, with the works of Fat Bashara, Fatilayaya, um, Reni Samavani. And you can see, and hopefully, their influence on, um, um, as you read the book, um, you know, the, um, I think they, as, as a, as a, um, Within this conversation, I think there's 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 two things that are really powerful, right? I mean, the, the one is obviously um, this idea that um, law is not sort of a, a territorially bounded and particularly land-based um, um, uh, activity or endeavor, that it travels in these very interesting, multiple and overlapping ways. Um, I, I, I hope that um, if you go to the introduction, you'll get a sense of of that, um, of that, the 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 power of that idea of the travels of law, right? How does law travel? Does it travel as just as precedent? Does it travel as codes? Does it travel as paper? Is it in the hands of um, litigants? You know, how does law travel? And the, and the answer that the book gives us it, it's all of them, right? I mean, it's it's all of them, and it's in tracing these overlapping itineraries that you get a sense of just how complex and how multifaceted that world is and how um, it sort of intersects with people's lives. So I think um, this sort of historiographic turn has really given us uh, this, the tools to kind of think about how um, um, how law travels and how it shapes people's, people's lives. Um, and the other is to really question what law is um, and, you know, how is that that definition of law unsettled by this oceanic turn, right? I mean, the um, uh, it's not just a question of um, traveling across a land border. There are so many other contingencies built into those travels. And I think um, all of the books that I mentioned earlier, and, and I hope this one too sort of... Um, raises those questions if it doesn't always conclusively answer them, right? I mean, it just gives you a different framework, a different paradigm through which to 
view those questions. Um, the second, and I think this is where Bolton is Tom is hopefully going to um, um, open up a new um, sort of um, avenue for research, is really in locating it in those um, late colonial, or in, in the case of the book itself, in, in the age of decolonization. And it's something that I think... Um, for mul multiple reasons, for you know, lack of access to archives, for you know, um, funding constraints when it comes to doing multi-sided research, um, for a number of reasons, um, it's not often that um, that post um, forty-seven research is pursued in in this kind of way, um, and I think that's where legal histories of the Indian Ocean is is headed <laughs> in this sort of. You know, thinking not just about connections and comparisons, but also about disconnections and disjunctures. Um, and I think um, here the age of decolonization is really powerful because it just, it, th these are difficult questions. These are, um, but equally important, I would say, questions to ask about how these two regions are connected. How, what does it mean for us um, uh, to look at questions of citizenship and belonging in this trans-regional way as opposed to um, thinking of it in, in, in within, um, within sort of nationalist frameworks. And I think that um, the methods that Indian Ocean historians have sort of perfected um, over the years uh, can really lend itself to asking this question in very subtle and nuanced ways. Um, and so that's where I hope boards will make an impact and hopefully um, um, you know, spur on a, a new set of projects. Uh, Dr. Ramnod, I loved your answer to, to that question because mm -hmm. it leads us really nicely to, to my next question, which is that among the signal interventions of your book, mm -hmm. it's really careful treatment of the law as an archive, which mm -hmm. might highlight broader debates over citizenship regimes and political belonging. Mm -hmm. You argue for the need to view law not simply as doctrine or as principle, but more mm -hmm as practice. Yes. Um, can you perhaps tell us a bit more about how the archive of jur jurisdiction might provide a lens into these broader processes of decolonization and state-making? And here, I have to mention as well that you've drawn on archival material from various countries, from India and Sri Lanka and Myanmar to Singapore and the UK. So mm -hmm. what archives did you turn to and what insights did they yield into these everyday lives of migrants and how they navigated their legal struggles? Mm-hmm. No, that's a really interesting question and really goes to the heart of how I sort of conceptualized this project, right? Um, and so um, the the idea of law as archive is something that I think both it adopts and it, I hope by the end of the book you also start to question, right? Uh, which is that, you know, an archive um, has a certain, you know, the, it, it, it um, uh, brings up question of how, questions of how it's ordered, organized, someone is actively involved in sort of setting it up in this way. Um, um, and, you know, that it was in a very sort of traditional formal archive that I started my research for the book. So um, I, start, I wanted to uh, work with the records of the Madras High Court, which I... Um, um, which I was able to access, um, and also the Tamil Nadu State Archives. So both very formal traditional archives. But, um, you know, um, it was, 
And I think I mentioned this in the book, but if it's not there or it's, you know, it's been edited out, I should say this, um, you know, a, a record room of a, of a law court, right, um, is very different from uh, a formal archive or uh, of the sort that the Tamanat State Archives is, right? It's um, it's not a record room; is a living thing. It's a, um, it's a, it, the records of previous um, um, cases um, are kept on the premises of the court because um, lawyers or judges or other officials in a court um, uh, might want to call upon it. Um, and this has everything to do with the way in which common law is practiced um, and which law is practiced in India and at the Madras High Court, which is that, you know, if you wanted to decide upon, um, the judges wanted to decide on a case, they would have to look at the particulars of the case, but they would also have to sort of look at um, previous rulings. How had they decided uh, similar cases? Can analogies be drawn or is this different? Um, and so, you know, for that reason, um, they would have to go back to cases that they had decided earlier and to those records. And it's for that reason that many of these records are, are preserved. Um, it's for, you know, what lawyers would call precedent. It's for looking at precedent. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it's a living thing in a way that I think is quite distinct from, uh, you know, the, the archives of government or a state. Um, so I got to work in those archives. My physic physically, where, where I was looking at these records, was in one of these record rooms in the court. Um, but you know, in talking to the record room workers, um, I wanted to I wanted to work in the 1940s and the 60s precisely for this, you know, for looking at these moments of political possibility before nation states became sort of you know the, the borders became much more. So you know, I asked them where are the records of the 1940s and the 50s, and they said, well, we're not. You may not want to. You know, you may not want to attempt <laughs> looking. You know, in the um, in the sort of um, um, uh, in the rooms where we store those records, and it, it really was quite different when I finally got to access that um, from the ordered, organized um, archive that I was seeing elsewhere. Um, it was just paper, just mountains of paper, um, and so it just became. You know, it became a sort of, it, it was really that encounter with that archive that shaped my thinking um, and my narration of this project. Because, I, you know, it, it, it sort of began to think, is is this an archive or is this detritus? <laughs> is, this, this, is this just um, paper that they have kept for, you know, um, precedent purposes um, or is it? something else altogether and and I particularly was interested in you know in the in in these in these records from the 1940s and 60s I started seeing that Madras was just not well um uh you know just not a site where cases were being decided um that had to do with things that were happening in India it was actually things that were happening outside India that was also uh, the subject of many of these disputes. And that's how the project came to be, because I started noticing these networks. Um, and so I started looking at those papers, reading through them, and in talking to the record room workers again, they said, well, these are not precedent. This is all, um, how do you say, uh, these are all, dis they, they use the word dismissed cases. These are all dismissed cases. They don't, they don't have any value as precedent. But I said, well, it matters to the people who are engaged in that dispute. So, 
it matters to me. <laughs> so then I started collecting those those records and um you know it's still i sort of oscillate between those two things you know is it what's what what was that archive that i encountered is there is there a distinct way in which one should think about that record room and is there a way in which one should think about cases that are not celebrated um cases are that are not you know sort of trials that get reported in newspapers um, not fought by lawyers who are prominent or successful, but just really seemingly unimportant, incredibly banal cases. Uh, but once, which I think, I hope the book shows, uh, was profoundly important to the people um, who were engaged in those disputes because um, they were trying to retain what I'm calling in the book the rhythms and patterns of, of migrant life. So. It's a it's a it's a it's a question that I still sort of I still go back to that. That's the foundation of the book, um, and from there I sort of trace, you know, as I said earlier, the travels of law. Where did they have to go? Did the litigants move? Did the lawyers go? How did they get hold of the materials from other jurisdictions? Um, and from there, Madras, of course, I traveled to Colombo, Yangon, um, had materials from Singapore, and so on. Um, and so you see Madras not as um, the southern port city, but as an you know, as as sort of a one vantage point with which to sort of look out on the shores of the Indian Ocean via the archives and law. And I, I would add, uh, I encourage the readers also to check uh, the image that you've provided in the book, uh, which shows really a side of these heaps of paper that mm-hmm. I had a chance to look at the a larger picture you yeah. during the defense. <laughs> <laughs> I was quite daunting to look at it. And I'm like, how could you make sense of all of this and yeah. to write such a dissertation in the book? So <laughs> that's really amazing that what you've done. And uh, and uh, and wielding the archives and writing these uh, beautiful stories, um, you've contributed to the developing literature on South Asia's multiple uh, partitions. Uh, most, uh, most historians who are familiar with the history of South Asia in the 20th century are overwhelmed by the literature on the, you know, the known partition between uh, Pakistan and India, but less is known about the partitions elsewhere uh, in the ocean around this time. So in presenting a view from the perspective of migrants uh, whose lives were often uh, adrift between uh, incipient uh, national regimes, and uh, you make the case that the social legal history of ordinary actors might revise our understanding of the uh, mid-century moment uh, in Southeast Asia's history. Uh, So can you situate this in relation to global conversations around um, citizenship, displacement, and loyalty? Absolutely. Thank you, Ahmed. This is is something that I've sort of, you know, um, again, um, you know, this this is very common when one is writing a book, right? I mean, you also want to unsettle, um, unsettle, sort of received understandings of the place that you're writing about or the theme that you're writing about or, um, uh, you know, how do we think about this differently? And, you know, it was from that very sort of common sense um, um, uh, motive that I that I thought of this formulation of other partitions. Um, and it was to ask, uh, you know, where do the stories that I was seeing in the Madras High Court archives or... Um, as I was sort of beginning to see in those, where do those those fit within 
uh, within our understanding of this mid twentieth century moment. And as you rightly said, um, there is and 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 you know sort of uh, uh, appropriately so um, there is an emphasis on histories of uh, the India Pakistan partition. Um, it is an event that that um, profoundly shaped and continues to have an impact on millions of people and their families uh, in the subcontinent shapes the culture, the politics, um, and sort of the dynamics of the region. So um, my intention with sort of looking at this notion of other partitions was less to less to sort of diminish the importance of that event, which I think also casts its long shadow on the people who I talk about in this book, and I'll circle back to that in a second, um, but also to ask, look, what other kinds of unravelings were happening at this time? Um, and what, um, uh, you know, how, how can one think of them as partitions, uh, um, you know, or separations? Um, the uh, the 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 um, how do you call it the uh, separation between India and Burma, um, which was, you know, took place as a constitutional um, uh, constitutional separation in 1937 or 1930 is often referred to the people by to by the people that I write about in this book who are traveling between India and Burma as the Piripa, right, and the separation. There's have their own name for it. So. So not necessarily uh, uh, necessarily to to diminish the importance of the the nineteen forty seven partition, but to say, look, there were other unravelings that were happening, and why have those stories uh, not been told alongside um, what we uh, are sort of appropriately also hearing about so much in the context of South Asian history. Um, and so, you know, this this sense of um, what other partitions could be really emerged from the archival material that I was looking at, and it's a kind of slow unraveling, right? There is no, um, there is no um, line being drawn um, between these uh, places in the way that uh, one sees in the context of the partition, the drawing of the Ratcliffe line. There is no um, uh, necessarily no land-based travel that is being interrupted um, um, to a large extent. So, I mean, what does it mean to sort of think about these unravelings across the ocean? Right? And that's that's where I sort of wanted to think about this idea of other partitions. Um, that said, as I mentioned, there is the long shadow of the forty-seven India-Pakistan partition that's cast. Uh, um, on the lives of these people. So, for example, if you go to, um, I know we're going to get into the chapters later, but in the chapter to, uh, that deals with application forms um, for diasporic um, uh, communities in Sri Lanka, they're asked to declare themselves either Indian or Pakistani before they can claim Ceylonese citizenship. Um, so there, there's that that notion is already embedded in these emerging national citizenship regimes that one has to be either or. Um, and then, uh, you know, once you come to the end of the book, you see that a lot of the displaced persons from Burma in the 60s, um, um, you know, are in, in later years are being housed um, alongside um, evacuees and displaced persons from um from what was um, 
East Pakistan. So there are continuities and really interesting um, and very moving sort of intersections between these two events. Um, but I hope that the book will sort of also shine a light on these these sort of lesser known partitions. Um, and in that way, maybe begin to think about, you know, does the same framework apply? Can we use, um, on, you know, can we use um, all of the wonderful insights that historians of the partition have offered, um, uh, you know, to, to be thinking about these sort of unravelings? Um, what is the banality of these encounters? Um, um, and, 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 you know, how, how does that contrast with the violence and the the um, the uh, um, loss of life that accompanied um, the 47 partition. So how do we kind of think about these things? So it does raise all of those questions, and I think those are generative ones. Of course, I I think that that's such a wonderful answer to get us started off with uh, the chapters of the book. And really, this book begins in media res with <laughs> this occupation of Burma, setting the a series of political convulsions across South and Southeast Asia. In this very first chapter, you write about the system of border controls, both geographical mm -hmm. and juridical, that emerged both during and after the war. So on a very basic level, how did World War II and the subsequent independence movements in India, Burma, Ceylon, and Malaya impact the established patterns of migration and trade across the Bay of Bengal? And how did these legal battles reflect the tensions between preserving earlier ways of life and adjusting to the changing political and economic landscape after the war. How might the view from Rangoon, for example, be different from that from Colombo? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, Kevin. That's a wonderful question. Um, and as you say, you know, um, uh, the story begins in 1942, um, but it is, uh, uh, you know, and it ends in 1962. The book is, is book and <laughs> the two bookends are these two displacements um, uh, from Burma. Um, and as I said earlier, I mean, my vantage point is Madras, but one could potentially think of other vantage points one, you know, one could use to kind of tell that story. But back to the book. Um, so, it, you know, th those two displacements bookend the book. Um, and it is really, um, it, it is really to sort of, um, Whole, I mean, my hope was that, that that structure will sort of make reflect the argument, which was that in the context of debates over political belonging, the main question that was being asked of these people who um, had been previously mobile across these these borders, um, the main question that was being asked was, "Where were you in 1942?" Right? Um, and it was uh, the, the I wanted the structure to reflect. Um, the 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 notion that you know at at the time that um, because the Japanese occupations people were being displaced from all across Southeast Asia that there was no sense of what um, um, you know that it was going to be a sort of a life altering event that there was no sense that they would be unable be unable to return to their homes or places of work um, it was very much viewed by the people who left. Um, as a sort of temporary movement, um, that they would go, they would, you know, seek shelter and, you know, from a potential air raid or a potential occupation of Kilamba or Abu, and then they would return. Um, and so 
you know, that temporariness is is what uh, it, it proves to be a false hope. Um, and at the time, you know, just a few years later, once um, once um, India gains independence, um, um, you know, the, the questions about political belonging, what 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 will our body politic look like? Um, what does what what will citizenship mean to us? So on and so forth. Those questions are emerging, and the question of what happens to these people who were previously moving. Um, across uh, uh, these borders uh, becomes a salient one, and there's no easy answer. Um, and this is again where we sort of return to the question of the partition, right? Because you know when the the Indian Constitution is uh, introduced, um, they uh, do have provisions in there to do with what would happen to people whose families were impacted by the partition. Their provisions. Um, for their citizenship, uh, but what you know, the way in which these provisions could be leveraged um, to seek some sense of political belonging for these diaspora communities is is not it's not that clear. It's not clear, for example, whether or you know, um, uh, uh, a trader in Colombo uh, could be registered as an Indian citizen um, under the Indian Constitution. Because India didn't have a citizenship act at that at that point, it doesn't appear on the statute books until 1955. Um, but there is a constitution that comes into force in 1950. So if there is that moment where it's unclear um, what would happen to these diaspora communities, and that's where these legal disputes sort of um, become salient, because there's the struggle between look, where would we? But whose citizenship should we seek? Whose citizenship do we want to seek? Um, and so on and so forth. So um, there is there is that sort of moment of um, is there's this liminal moment where it's, it's not entirely clear. And I hope that when you read the book, that you get that sense of anxiety and confusion and um, uh, you know, uh, hopefully sort of made that palpable in the prose. Um, you know, there's 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 that question, and it's not like the governments themselves have a very clear picture of how this is going to go, right? Um, and this is again where we return to the to the 1942 moment because right before the Japanese occupation, uh, the governments of India and Burma and Ceylon are all engaged in trying to come to uh, some sort of agreement over what's going to happen to Indian immigration. Um, uh, to these countries, and it it gets abandoned due due to the war. Um, but you know, just five years later, it's a completely different reality. Those are, agreements are not revived. Uh, you know, each of those governments is working on their own citizenship on their own citizenship legislation, um, and um, you know, they, they they have to find a way to make it all fit together. Um, and you know, towards the end of the book. I show how it, it all kind of comes together or doesn't quite in the 1960s. And obviously this is all still a work in progress, um, as you can tell with the current situation. Um, you also asked what how the um how the view looks, you know, the view on uh the view is different from Kalambo and Rangoon. And I think that's a really interesting question. Um and the way I try to to deal with it in the book is simply to follow the travels of York. 
and where the archival trail led, I followed. Um, so it's just sort of reading along the brain. There might be other ways to deal with that question. And it's, you know, what I what I definitely wanted to avoid was to write it as a sort of comparative history, right? And here's what happened in India, and here's what happened in Sri Lanka, and here's what happened in Burma. Because then that would be going back to that sort of framework that we had earlier where you would, you would look at these places as silos, and they were not silos um, for the people who are trying to retain um, the networks and back, you know, their, their networks and their their ability to move between those places. They, that wasn't their perspective. So I tried to adopt that in the book. Thank you so much for that answer, uh, Dr. Ramnath. I want to, that's perhaps actually a really good way for us to segue into the next chapter uh, titled Banana Money, where you take this <laughs> banal object, the banana currency that circulated around the yeah. water Otherwise, of Japanese occupied Southeast Asia, this this object that I, you know, that I find in my grandparents' collection, yes, to look into broader questions of capital, credit, and money circulations in the wake of post-war economic collapse. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get a bit of a preview of this chapter in your article Intertwined Itineraries, where you likewise focus on the case of Sita Lakshmi Achi, the widow of Natakotai Chetia moneylender, as an Point into interrogating the emergence of nationalist mobilizations to it, land nationalization mm-hmm. and against foreign owned businesses. So, how do these migrants navigate the changing legal and economic regimes? And how does this complicate the standard narrative of decolonization? Absolutely. Um, so this is the first, this is the chapter um, that is centered on a sort of debt recovery case. This is the most staple of legal disputes, right? I mean, if you're uh, you know, the uh, uh, bounced check uh, uh, and a, a promissory note that was not honored and so on and so forth. I mean, this is the most banal uh, of legal cases that one might find in the uh, find in the archive. So this is, a, except that in this particular case, it involves a Chetia family that had businesses both in Madras and in Burma and um, who also operated through a system of agents and, you know, um, we know from the previous work on JTR banking networks and so on and so forth that um, uh, that the, the, the JTR uh, merchants often dealt with uh, businesses in multiple sites through agents. Um, they had agents who would travel to Burma, to Ceylon, to um, uh, you know, all over the place, um, and, and they would stay for three years and then come back. Um, and this is the this particular case involved an agent who um, who stayed back during the war, <laughs> during the occupation of Rangoon, um, and you know he carried out some transactions on behalf of um, a merchant who was located or trader who was located in Madras. After the war ends, um, the question becomes: you know, were those um, were, were those repayments of money um, valid? Uh, the repayments were made using occupation currency or what was uh, referred to in the, the press at the time as banana money um, because it had, you know, the, the currency notes had a little, you know, a, a, a picture of a banana plant on it. <laughs> so, um, you know, for, for, for Burma, it was actually a pagoda. Uh, so those, you know, could people transact in this money? Did that money have any value after the war ended and the occupation was over? Um, and so the legal dispute was about that. Could one honor those repayments? 
Um, so I used that, that that sort of you know minor legal dispute to look at how um, what the fallout of the war was um, and how did these cases end up in Madras. Um, and so you know it, it, it was because they were displaced during the war. They had all many of them, uh, you know. Um, Fled back with the with the exception of some of these cases that I mentioned, but they all had to find a way to kind of rebuild uh, their trade networks, rebuild their money lending networks, and so on and so forth. Um, so um, that's that's what this case was about, and it, I think it, it it is a different uh, a different sort of sense of how decolonization worked because these cases they extended to the 1960s and 70s if you look and we go all the way up to the Indian Supreme Court they're still litigating the question of whether uh, wartime currency was uh, was um, and w- 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 what value it had um, you know they eventually as you can see in the chapter they find they sort of um, de- well, how do you call it retroactively give it some um uh, uh, give it some value there's a sliding scale uh, that says all right if you had 10 rupees in occupation currency in to ten dollars it, it it mean it, it is what this much now um and so you know all it does is spot on more legal disputes and you know uh there's a newspaper article from that time this this is only going to make more money for lawyers and that's true it ends up being these very long drawn out disputes um, but this is also, you know, uh, a way for me to, you know, the dispute also highlights a, an argument that I'm making in the book, which is that the time of decolonization, right, the temporalities that are generated in legal disputes, through legal disputes, really stretch the time of decolonization for, for people. If you are in the 1960s and still being asked about what was happening um, with your agents and merchants during the Japanese occupation, then it's 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 as though that is still the value, right? And if you've ever been, you know, if you've read an ethnography of a, of a law court, you've been in a law court, you see how it's circling back to the past constantly. So it's that sense of, uh, you know, you know, of, uh, of, of, um, of that moment still being kept alive and what that means for um, how people experience decolonization that I think disputes like this sort of illuminate. Of course, uh, there's a larger point here, I think, to be made as well about mm-hmm. this like, temporality of decolonization that you captured mm-hmm. so beautifully in the book. Mm-hmm. Because decolonization unfolds really as a very staggered process with yes. India and Pakistan in 1947, Ceylon mm-hmm. in 48, Malaysia in 57, and uh, Singapore finally in 65. And here, I think that um, this really gets at the argument that's central to your third chapter, where you have the question of tax residence and the flight of refugee capital in yes. order to illuminate the legal battles around the wealth of the Chetias. Yes. Perhaps be an apposite moment to ask, would you tell us a bit more about who the Natukutai Chetias were as a community oh. and aspects of their economic life, including ship-based remittances, circular migration and customary business practices, were disrupted by competing taxation regimes. And of course, I also have to mention here the gorgeous photographs you have in your book of the Chetia Temple in Rangoon. We really get a wonderful sense of the geographies and landscapes left behind by the travels of Chetia capital uh, in the early turn of century all across Southeast Asia and in the abandoned mansions of, of Chetinat today in towns like mm-hmm. and Budokotai. 
So I would really want to invite you to perhaps talk a bit more about your research process uh, behind writing this chapter as well. Um, so the third chapter, thanks, Kevin. Um, yes, I, I also encourage readers to take a close look at the photographs. They are, um, you know, they, they formed a big part of, you know, how I wanted to write this book. As I mentioned at the beginning, I wanted it to have a powerful sense of place. Um, um, you know, also because law is not just a moral or philosophical or theoretical question out there. It is something that is, you know, very much tied to question the place. So um, the photographs were a sort of gesture to to that and I had the very good fortune of being able to travel to these places to be able to see what that what you know what the remnants of these networks um, looked like um, and meet with some of those people so even if it isn't directly in the book I hope that um, you know my own retracing of those tips um, lends a certain quality to <laughs> to the to the prose that um, I hope readers will enjoy um but in particular to the question of the Chetiyas, so the Chetiyas are um, initially traders um, and um, eventually money lenders and financiers and both politically and uh, economically speaking, um, extremely prominent um, as part of the diaspora, both in Southeast Asia, but also eventually um, East Africa and so on and so forth. So they are, they have very widespread networks. The um, Start as green and salt traders on the uh, on the on the southeastern coast um, of India, um, and then they eventually start moving out um, to Colombo, to India, to uh, Burma, and so on. But it is in Burma that they have their largest investment. Um, um, they, uh, if you look at the legal records from. The late 19th century onwards, you will see long uh, lists of cases. Um, um, law, if you look at the administrative records, uh, you know references to Chetias every day. So they have a very sort of prominent role to play in Obama. And this is not something. This is you know we know this from previous scholarship that they followed imperial networks um, and, and, you know, were able to act as um, often as intermediaries. Uh, so for people who couldn't secure credit from a European bank, for instance, um, they kind of filled that role, playing uh, the role of a middleman. But they also had their own investments. They were investing in land, um, uh, in sawmills and so on and so forth. But it is really the story, um, you know, we know this from, you know, histories of migration, um, particularly if you look at Sunil Amrit's Crossing the Bay of Bengal, which is so um, formative for my own thinking about these networks, you know, you, you the Chetty aspect of that. Um, but in the 1930s, it's with the depression that the, uh, you know, the, the global economic depression, that things become very murky um, and they, you know, they, do not um, uh, they 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 never lent out without some kind of collateral. Um, so you know collateral was often land, um, and when these um, loans were not repaid, they foreclosed um, uh, or they sort of took hold of the collateral, and that's how they became, you know, the 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 landowners to the extent that they were in Burma. Um, and so you know they you know they they also as a result of this became quite prominent in political circles and you'll, you'll see a lot um, in the book 
um, about how they made a case for themselves as um, central to the post-war economic future that Burma uh, ought to have. You know, they say we have invested. That's the story they tell. That's the you know, that we have invested all of this money. We have invested our energies, and you know we want to see Burma prosper and so on and so forth. But you know, eventually, um, they do. Um, much of the land is nationalized. Much of their wealth, they, they were the wealth from Burma, they are unable to recover. Um, at the same time, hopefully, as Chapter Three shows, um, there were remittances being made from Burma to India, beginning in the thirties, um, and that you know, you know, it's, it's not an insignificant sum of money, and um, much of this. Um, it coincides, uh, perhaps because of this, uh, you know, there are lots of debates over introducing any income tax legislation, which wasn't particularly important for India until then, uh, is really in response to these remittances made by diaspora communities, including the Chetriyas, that they um, uh, that they start thinking about who was a who who needs to pay tax, um, who um, what 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 was the quantum of tax that should be paid. So it's very technical. Uh, but also incredibly, uh, incredibly important in that you know they, uh, it was really about you know who has to pay, who gets to benefit from um, um, benefit from uh, uh, the resources of a particular country. So, in the end, the question of residence becomes very very salient um, to these tax cases, um, and the. The displacement during the occupation plays a central role because uh, some of these remittances are made during the war and so on and so forth. And you can just imagine that they were trying to be uh, uh, trying to have it both ways. So then the question becomes, you know, how do we? There was no double taxation agreement in place at that time. But eventually, one is crafted in response to these stories. So, you know, it's it's a, it's it's much more about you know what how do how do we measure out the length of time uh, that is needed for someone to be seen as belonging to a country, and tax tax cases become a way for me to kind of think about that, a way for the reader to kind of get a sense of just how really seemingly minor cases can also illuminate these broader questions. And just minor, but I was amazed how did you transform such a dry source as a tax case. And this fluid narrative and beautiful histories uh, weaving into, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad with yeah, I'll, yeah, I'm, I'm income tax. <laughs> <laughs> income but, tax is certainly not the most compelling of archives to look at, but <laughs> and you take another another dry archive, which is which is um, the passport and citizenship, uh-huh. which okay. you take on in chapter four uh, application. Forms, yeah. uh, and the concept of citizenship plays a significant role in the book. And yes. and you focus particularly on uh, a paper technology that we, you know mm-hmm. as uh, naturalization applications, put mm-hmm. by tea plantation laborer in Ceylon. Mm-hmm. Did these migrants uh, experience citizenship during and after decolonization, especially considering the shifting political dynamics across? Uh, the Balkan Straits dividing uh, Lanka from uh, the subcontinent. Can you share some examples from this chapter that uh, illustrates how migrants' uh, narratives challenge the idea of static national identities? 
and how these uh, fragile pieces of paper, uh, remittance forms, properties, uh, personal letters, assume such heightened significance during this time. Absolutely, thank you, Ahmed. Um, so I should I should say as a as a perhaps as you know that this will be helpful for the reader. And I don't know if you know this was something that was compelling to to you both as you read the book. Um, each of the each of the chapters is centered around a different kind of paper. So you know, banana money and then tax receipts, and then finally application forms. Um, because I think this is the sort of thing that you know one encounters in the archives. The sort of thing that I encountered in the archives. Um, so the ch- chapter four, which has to do with application forms, um, and it's it's a sort of pivot chapter in the book, um, and it talks about um, um, primarily um, applications, application prompts for naturalization in Ceylon, um, um, not Sri Lanka, uh, that I encountered in the National Archives of Sri Lanka, um, and so you know much of these. Uh, but many of these application forms were, were, um, were filed by plantation laborers um, who were themselves um, brought over from um, southern um, Madras um, to work in the tea planting beginning in the in the nineteenth century. Um, and so the you know the the reason why there's just so many different kinds of papers you mentioned remittance forms, they are property deeds, and so on and so forth, is because these archives were. The archives of the Commission for the Registration of Indian and Pakistani Residents. Um, so these were basically case files um, that were compilations of inquiry reports, um, and they are um, they they also included all of the evidence that was submitted as part of the naturalization application. So you see, really, um, in very sort of grand in a granular ways you know the the sediment of people's lives you know as they sort of try to um uh, as they try to piece together a narrative about how they belonged and so on um so you know to the plantation you know that uh, some readers will be likely familiar with the context um but for others um uh beginning in the late ni- uh, beginning in the 19th century um um, the um, laborers are brought over from southern Madras to Ceylon, to work in central Ceylon, to work on the plantations, um, which first grew primarily coffee and then primarily tea. Um, and then, you know, many of them had been, you know, brought over as children. They settled there, spent their whole lives, they were married, went to school, had children, so on and so forth. Very much. Uh, um, spend their lives in Ceylon. There are others that were born in Ceylon, um, you know, had never seen India and so on and so forth. There are also others that, you know, uh, were, whose lives were chronicled in these archives that were not on the plantations, but the the bulk of the chapter has to do with plantation laborers. Um, so one of the stories that I tell in the, in the chapter is that of a... Um, um, of Kandaswami Muttaya, who is uh, a laborer who fi- tries to uh, apply for Sillani citizenship. Sillani citizenship is offered, um, by, you know, first through the Ceylon Citizenship Act 1948, soon after Sillani's independence. Um, and then later, uh, because that particular legislation did not have provisions for people like, the, like Muttaya, um, uh, there's a different enactment uh, uh, brought into force called the Indian Pakistani Resident Citizenship Act. 
And under that, you had to basically um, prove uh, that you intended to permanently settle on the island, that you had been in continuous residence for a period of years, and that you had no ties to any other place, uh, in particular to India or Pakistan. And um, it is in the course, so you file an application, and then a commissioner comes in and examines all of the evidence and decides whether or not it's compelling. If it's not compelling, you're called in for an inquiry, um, where you're questioned on all of the evidence, you're asked to, you know, furnish witnesses and so on and so forth. At the end of it, you know, the commissioner tells you whether you um, are eligible for citizenship or not. Um, and so Mutaya was, uh, Mutaya's application was one of those. Um, and so, you know, you see all kinds of things. There's like a little extract from a post office savings bank book. <laughs> um, there are little receipts uh, that he has from sort of this petty trade that he did before he became a laborer, um, you know, and so on and so forth. So there's like really the, the you know, the everydayness of life is sort of captured by that. Um, the commissioner in Mutaya's case calls him in for an inquiry. Um, he asks him questions about why his there are no records relating to his children, how they could he could prove that they had been there continuously resident for the time period that required by the legislation. Um, he says, "Look, your witnesses are not credible, so on and so forth." And really, at the end of that story, we we don't know what happens to Mutaya, and this is you know a feature of the archive, but also you know something that historians often particularly when dealing with marginalized histories of this kind, uh, that we really don't know what happened to Mutaya and his family. Um, it's really only through this paper trail that we can get a sense of his life. Um, uh, we don't know if he claimed a different identity, whether he disappeared, whether he was quote-unquote repatriated to India. Um, we, have, we have no idea what happens to him at the end, barring this this sort of application and its inquiry. That's such a beautiful way of really reconstructing his story. Um, and here, I think that I want to perhaps link this a little bit to your next chapter titled Women Who Wait, where you examine the relationship between political attachments and familial attachments. Mm -hmm. And similarly, sort of do this work of reconstructing these very everyday, very quotidian, very familial relationships with so much detail and mm -hmm. care. And ultimately, you offer a far more nuanced portrayal of the domain of family law. Um, so central to these legal arguments were really competing visions of citizenship that emerged uh, in this period of decolonization. Uh, so you have uh, Jus Solis on one hand and Jus Sanguinis on, on the other. And these debates in your account came to be manifest most prominently in the shifting legal categories accorded to Tamil-speaking Muslims across the Bay of Bengal. So why did this community that variously becomes known as Coast Moors or Tamil Muslims or even Jawi Baranakan in different places. Mm -hmm. It's just quite so central to the legal battles that you're recounting in this chapter. It's a wonderful question. And I think my intention with, you know, uh, with that chapter was to really, you know, bring together all of the threats that, you know, that the different chapters had offered and just, you know, sort of also make the larger point that this was never about just the particular people that, um, that one is, it it's sort of snowballs into something larger, right? I mean, so if the citizenship debate or over, you know, whether plantation laborers belonged or not um, in Ceylon, and given that the um, 
their ancestor, ancestors had been brought over. It was not never about just um, them. It was also about what it meant to belong to those players, um, you know, to Ceylon. Um, um, and I think, you know, it also affects uh, the Sri Lankan Tamil community in a different way. And I sort of also made gestures to that. So it wasn't ever that, look, ah, Thank, thank goodness this doesn't doesn't pertain to us. It was never about that. That these these minor sort of moves that are being made in order to disenfranchise um, the the most marginalized of communities eventually tend to have repercussions for the broader bo- body politic. And this is you know the, in the case of the Tam- uh, 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 the Tamil speaking. Uh, Muslim traders, and you know, I, I make a note at the end about the language that is used to describe these uh, Muslims uh, in Sri Lanka. Um, so I, I would urge readers to sort of, you know, get to that as well. But basically, um, as I mentioned earlier, these application inquiries were not, or these citizenship inquiries were not sort of um, restricted to plantation laborers. They started having an impact on. Um, other communities as well, and so um, uh, many uh, uh, traders, uh, y- you know, that they, they, they were able because of the proximity of um, uh, Sri Lanka to uh, the southeastern coast of India. It's, it, some readers will know that it's only twenty-two miles um, apart at its narrowest point. Um, because of that proximity, I mean, this was never, you know, a situation where it was considered two different, you know, nation states that, that were not bridgeable, right? I mean, there were people who traveled back and forth between these places all the time. Um, and so in the chapter, I sort of tried to capture that uh, through the story of two traders um, um, and how they their sort of linkages um, to their families who were located in India are seen as or re-interpreted um, as being a political attachment. Uh, that, look, if you were sending money back to your family, you know, that should be seen as a, a betrayal of sorts. It's, it's as though one is not fully, one doesn't fully belong to uh, uh, Sri Lanka, they, that you had other loyalties. Um, and that sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, comes up against customary ways in which people lived their lives, um, you know, where uh, women uh, stayed behind and men traveled. Um, but, you know, I sort of hope to unsettle that sort of formulation to say, look, they weren't just sitting there waiting. <laughs> and that's just, you know, the they were living their lives, um, and you know that 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 didn't necessarily translate into a kind of political attachment of the sort that um, 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 or the states were keen to to sort of deduce from that sort of uh, uh, that sort of migrant lifestyle. So you know that's what I was hoping to do with it that uh, um, that chapter, and then of course it I mean it takes place I mean both of these chapters and indeed all of them take place against the background of sort of a rising crescendo of like, you know, look, we don't we don't need um migrant investment, we don't need migrants here and so on and so forth. Um but 
uh, you know, I've tried to kind of keep that in the background and foreground um, people's lives deliberately because I wanted to kind of see, you know, what 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 did it mean for migrants themselves to try and preserve these? You know, it's not necessarily a, a declaration of political loyalty. It could be many more other things. And so that's what I was hoping to do with that. Um, with that chapter, but perhaps there's something else that that struck you <laughs> um, that you want me to talk about. No, of course, because I I think that the sense of place that you've uh, prioritized throughout the writing of this book really shines through in this particular chapter. Uh, I re- I'm just remembering my time in Talaimanar uh, mm-hmm. in the northern province of Sri Lanka earlier this year, mm-hmm. where standing on the pier, you could make out the horizon in the horizon. Uh, the the contours of India, and likewise when I traveled down to Danushkodi, which is mm-hmm. this port that was ruined by the cyclone in the nineteen sixties, but mm-hmm. prior to that was the active site of this uh, of multiple crossings between mm-hmm. India and Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. You really get a sense of how close these geographies are. Yeah, uh, right. And in this chapter, that sense of scale and that sense of place really, really shown through, and I really quite enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I Thank think that, you. I, I think that what you do a remarkable job as well is in chapter six, where you focus on the repatriation of labor migrants from all these places, Burma, Ceylon, Malaya, especially those with leftist sympathies who were expelled en masse back to Madras. Mm-hmm. And for me, this was one of the most moving chapters in your book. And I found myself incredibly swayed by your reconstruction of how post-war national regimes moved to banish and deport migrants by labeling them as insurgents, as communists, mm-hmm. which posed a grave risk of statelessness for, for many of these workers. Mm-hmm. So if you could just tell us a bit more about the broader political context for these deportations, why were so many leading independence parties, including ostensibly left-wing ones, so keen common cause with ethno-nationalist movements that were quite explicitly exclusionary towards migrants? Mm-hmm. And how does the legal archive of habeas corpus applications provide a lens to emerging understandings of territory, political belonging, and indigeneity? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thanks, Kevin. And so the chapters that you're referring to, chapter six and seven, actually form part two of the book. And it's you know, it's a it's a shift, uh, not necessarily in scale, but it emphasis of sorts, a, a sort of slightly different emphasis, because both have to do much more with the political context in which these legal disputes are emerging. Um, so it's a slightly different emphasis, and that's why it forms a different section of the uh, the book. So in chapter six, um, I I call it red flags. Um, and it has to do with habeas corpus litigation um, in the Madras High Court. That has to do with you know what the the the, the intelligence officials call the Malayan detainees, and these are um, uh, men who young men um, who are being deported or banished from Liam, um, and they land up in Madras. And they some of them. Many of them have no prior ties to Mughals at all, apart from being of Indian descent. Um, and the question becomes, you know, um, the question becomes, you know, where do they belong? Uh, they've been uh, banished uh, from uh, from Singapore uh, on grounds of having leftist tendencies, and then 
also at the same time uh, in Madras, um, uh, you know, having no ties, no one to kind of come and bail them out or anything of that sort. And the political context in which this is happening, um, as you will see um, from sort of the beginning paragraphs of that chapter, is really the uh, uh, the emergency, uh, what was called the emergency in India, um, and simultaneously also a massive pushback against left-wing parties in in Madras. Um, again, this ties back to the partition in a sort of way, right? This move in Madras to um, to sort of silence dissent through um, what were called public order acts or public order legislation, um, or some of the major sort of you know um, public order legislation had provisions like indefinite detention. Um, you could uh, you could be um, you know confined to your home. Um, they could, uh, you know, uh, police officials could confiscate uh, um, written materials, so on. So they, so they are sort of a, the precursors of um, what is today like a lot of sort of um, anti-terror legislation and security legislation. Um, and they were initially put in place in the late 1940s to deal with what you know the government believed was going to be communal violence resulting from the partition. Um, but by and large, the way it was used in Madras was to silence dissent of any kind. Um, and the Madras Maintenance of Public Order Act, under which these um, quote-unquote Malayan detainees are indefinitely detained, um, is one of those one of those um, cases. And so, you know, they um, end up being detained with no um, sense of why they were being imprisoned, what their stories were, and so on and so forth. So that, you know, you see sort of some of those, um, you see uh, just very sort of sparse um, reasoning in the order itself. But if you start tracing their stories in the intelligence reports, you start seeing much more of that story, right? So, um you know, towards the end of the chapter, I talk about how, uh, you know, one of them who was, uh, one of the men who was accused of uh, being a trade unionist or uh, a leftist uh, was actually just, uh, and, and he was suspected of having those sympathies, uh, was actually some, and, and one of the, one of the pieces of evidence against him was that he had changed his name. He was really just doing that to escape trouble at home and so on. And so these are just very sort of, um, how do you call it? Uh, there were people with very sort of uh, very everyday, very banal sort of um, concerns who get caught up in this whirlwind of, you know, um, uh, you know, new states um, um, trying to impose restrictions on their um, subjects or citizens um, that have to do with um, uh, that have to do with politics that was far beyond the horizon of, of their own sort of horizons or, you know, that they had nothing to do with, with much of their lives. Um, but there are, of course, other stories that I tell in the book in which people are sort of, um, uh, you know, are do proclaim their leftist tendencies and, you know, what, what the kind of disproportionate treatment that they receive at the hands of states. Um, one of the things that was really compelling about this chapter for me was the use of the term banishment. Um, the idea that with some readers will know that um, at this time, as Kelvin mentioned earlier, um, Malaya 
Singapore, Malaya is not independent, while India is, and there's still a sort of um, there are uh, uh, revivals of um, the kind of laws that uh, that that seem to belong to another age, right? And so the notion of banishment itself is very interesting to me. I do think there's much more work to be done on this, on this, um, you know, to try and tell the full story. Um, and I hope um, we'll see much more work on you know, on, on this on this subject. Um, uh, this is just what I was able to uncover from you know the archives that I was able to access in Mudas. And you've done a great job with that. And honestly, every chapter could be a project on its own for <laughs> graduate students who are listening. Yes, until yes. you and cover more. And the events really uh, accelerate in the final chapter, 1962, uh, where you return once again to Burma, and this time on the cusp of yet another political upheaval of General uh, Nguyen's military takeover of the country and the implementation of a series of, uh, of increasing punitive uh, legislative measures, which are the restriction of migrant uh, remittances new documentary requirements for quote-unquote foreigners and rising rates of income tax. So by this point, would you argue that the closure of a formerly mobile world uh, for migrants had completely ceased to exist? Uh, how does the category of citizenship uh, uh, become the paradigmatic category for formerly uh, mobile actors? Uh, how did these political changes uh, pose different Impact across the Bay of Bengal and in India and Khan, Myanmar, as well as in Malaysia and Singapore. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, so in in many ways, the sixty-two, uh, you know, the, the 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 decision to end the, the narrative in sixty-two is sort of somewhat artificial, right? and um, it is meant to, as I mentioned earlier, signal to the the structure of the argument, which is that you know the the. The, the the displacement was central to the story of citizenship in ways that have not been fully understood previously. Um, so I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say that um, uh, the uh, the story ends with sixty two. I mean, certainly you see a repetition of certain patterns: the use of you know taxation or immigration or um, detention regimes to um, restrict people from engaging in mobility across borders, right, with the military coup in Burma. Um, you see that there isn't a banishment of sorts of the sort that you see in Chapter 6, but also a slow unraveling, a tightening of the screws. You know, the idea that one has to now choose, you know, being compelled to choose between one place or the other. I think citizenship, um, you know, many of the... Uh, many of the, the the sites that I study in or India, Ceylon, or Burma, they all have their citizenship legislation in place, but it's certainly not a settled matter. Um, nor importantly, is it a settled matter for the people who are uh, trying to reestablish those uh, those patterns of mobility. Um, that said, I mean it, it is a it is what it is, right? I mean, it's a, the, the decolonization is an ongoing process. I mean, just. As I was starting work on this dissertation, I remember um, there was a piece in the Financial Times that came out that said, to Burma for our properties. So, you know, there was this brief moment before, obviously, what's happening in Burma right now, um, uh, where 
the possibility existed that you know some of these things would be some of these matters would re be reopened. Um, this year marks two hundred years of the Malay Tamil uh, struggle for full recognition as, as citizens in Sri Lanka. Um, some readers might have seen uh, some of the events that are associated with um, with that sort of milestone. Uh, you know, the march um, from Talemanar to uh, uh, you know to to central what was central Salon. Um, sort of to draw attention to what is happening with the Malay Tamil community that was also impacted by the civil war. Um, that is happening at the moment. Um, you know, the the place that was that Kelvin was alluding to earlier in Dhanushkodi, uh, where there is uh, there was the, the quarantine camp where um, um, laborers were inspected, quote unquote, before they boarded the ferry for for Lanka was. Is now a refugee camp. It still stands. Um, the uh, inspection bungalow there is called Kelania. <laughs> so, really, remnants of many of those um, those past still ongoing. It's still incredibly difficult for uh, Sri Lankan Tamil refugees in India to gain full Indian citizenship. Um, those who are repatriated to India, quote unquote, um, do not have full access um, to land ownership. Um, and, uh, you know, the the story, the, you know, the, these old stories are being made new all the time, including the use of repressive legislation to silent, silence political dissent. That happens, too, um, in, in unsurprising ways. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't say that any of these stories have come to an end, um, but you know, the book has to come to an end. So, um, so in a sense, I wanted to, you know, if only uh, to lend a certain, um, um, uh, to allow the reader to kind of, um, to be able to contain those stories, you know, if, if only for a moment, you know, that, that was my thinking behind the 42 and the 62 displacements from Burma. But of course, there are many more, many more stories waiting to be uncovered. And of course, you know, uh, like you said, Professor Ramla, the the impact of your book, the import of your book, uh, far exceeds this closing moment of 1962. Many of the political upheavals that we uh, have been witnessing, you know, today all across the Bay of Bengal, from Sri Lanka to Myanmar to Southeast Asia, uh, are, you know, they can they, they can be directly traced back to this foundational moment of establishing different forms of citizenship regimes uh, all across the Bay. And so we have a conclusion. I perhaps want to invite you to talk a bit more about how your book as a whole might contribute to our understanding of decolonization and its mm -hmm. complexities, uh, particularly in the context of migration and citizenship. What takeaways or lessons uh, can readers gain from the book about the, about the questions of migration, identity, and nation building in the wake of empires? Yeah. Thanks, Kevin. I think there's, uh, as you mentioned, I mean, there's some more direct ways in which you can see how um, the fallout of the ways in which citizenship was directly tied to certain understandings of loyalty, uh, to certain understandings of dissent and birth, um, um, have had a sort of um, ongoing uh, impact on the way in which we see who is an insider, who's an outsider, who belongs and who doesn't. 
Um, and this isn't just a question of a political debate. And I hope the book shows that this has everything to do with how, um, you know, people live day to day. It has, you know, it's it's not, it's not a, it's not a political problem necessarily only, right? I mean, it's also something that, um, uh, you know, we have to kind of grapple with um, on a day-to-day basis. Um, it has ongoing implications for the way in which we think about statelessness, um, particularly, um, you know, its attention to documentary regimes and how um, they can often, um, um, you know, sort of, be seen as a neutral or logical way to think about, you know, if it's if it's legal, it has to be documented. I mean, that, you know, can often be a farce. Um, um, and, you know, one shouldn't really be thinking of, do- you know, the use of documents alone as a way to solve the problem of statelessness or of belonging. Um, and I think it has... Um, you know, I, th- I think it has ongoing implications for the way in which we think about these places as as though one can, you know, what's happening on one shore of the Indian Ocean has implications for what's happening on the other. And, this, you know, it's not necessarily that um, one can forget this that not-so-long-ago moment. <laughs> and, um, yeah, you know, there, there are now shared concerns and shared uh, challenges that that have to be met and you know uh, one has to sort of discard some of these uh, ways in which we think about indigeneity in particular or, or belonging who's belong who arrived first who um who's lived the longest here or who came from where i mean so some of these questions um where were you when the state needed you and so on and so forth i mean these are these are some of the underlying questions I think that fuels much of the political debate, and we see hopefully through this book um, how the the ongoing uh, damage that that can do. Um, so that's in in very sort of broad terms what I hope uh, what I hope the import of this book will be, um, but also the sense of you know how do we think about decolonization? Of course, it's a term that is often appropriated. Um, to mean a certain return to an authentic, uh, 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 an authentic way, <laughs> and I think that question, that 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 question of, um, you know, although I don't use it in that way in this book, decolonization is really used here in the book to mean. Um, uh, the sort of political and diplomatic negotiations around the withdrawal of empires. And this was an attempt to be able to speak to an audience that was interested in international relations and so on and so forth. Um, but it also, you know, I think uh, it threaded to the book is this this um, uh, this this idea that there is that that this other way of look we should we should think about decolonization as a return to authenticity is you know has been appropriated uh, to serve nationalist sentiments and that's going to get us nowhere so um i hope the book does some of that work um and hopefully raises questions for others to follow um, 
Yes, and and the beautiful thing about it is that rather than having only a, a top-down approach that looks at you know the situation from uh, the state down, we have this textured uh, history uh, multiplying you know voices and and viewpoints. And it really relates not just to different parts of the Indian Ocean during this time, but also across the world, uh, these <laughs> questions of relevance and implications. And as much as I would love this conversation to keep going, uh, we have uh, to uh, end here. Uh, but I would urge the listeners to go and pick up the book to really enjoy the prose itself beside the history and uh, pick up on all of these stories uh, that we've uh, just touched the surface of and there is much more to learn about and uh, we have one more question before letting you go this is our chat question it's very unfair because the book is just sad <laughs> but i gotta ask it for the audience um, what are you working on now uh, uh to hope to work on in the future since the book is out <laughs> well, yes, I mean, but it's also, you know, one of the great joys of being um, a historian who's had the good fortune of being able to delve into so many rich archives and, you know, uh, is that, you know, the projects that just present themselves <laughs> at every turn. Um, so my next project is also most definitely an Indian Ocean project, um, hopefully still a story about South Southeast Asia. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of exploring the idea of abandoned places um, and how, uh, you know, how abandonment can function as a technique of sovereignty. Um, so I'll be stepping, uh, stepping back from the mid-20th century moment, hopefully doing a much more sort of long durée um, project. I've written a little bit about this um, in uh, a piece for in um, uh, a piece for the Center for History and Economics. It's called Temporary. Um, and so um, hopefully building on all of those archives to kind of think about abandonment um, as a technique of sovereignty. But there's hopefully, hopefully a little bit of a break between now and this next project but it's it's at the back of my mind it's something that i'm thinking about that sounds fascinating and we hope to have you again thank you so much dr ramnath for sharing your time and insights and and packing the book for the listeners and thank you for the listeners for tuning in in which we uh, explored boats in a storm law migration and decolonization in south and southeast asia between 1942 to 1962, published by Stanford University Press in 2023. This is your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi. And I'm Cal Calvin Ng. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.